Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. And today I'd like to share a little bit of my immigrant story and try to explain the kinship I feel to the Central American children and their parents who've been fleeing their countries and trying to find refuge here. There are those among us who see these desperate refugees as a nuisance, human refuse that must be removed and sent back. That's the same attitude that confronted my Irish ancestors. My great-great-grandparents, Peter Gallagher and Sarah Flanagan, fled Ireland in the 1840s when the Great Famine raged, killing a million people and forcing another two million to find shelter in the United States and other parts of the world. Peter and Sarah took their four kids and sought refuge in Greenwich, Scotland, but they were met with the same disdain and prejudice that greeted the Irish refugees who landed in the United States. They ignored the prejudice as much as they could, and they moved into a tenement apartment with two other families, 14 people in all. They eventually found work in Greenwich as day laborers, street sweepers, housekeepers, and ship fitters and riveters on Greenwich shipbuilding docks. Eighty years later, my grandfather John Gallagher had just returned from the battlefields of World War I, where he had served with the Scottish Highlanders and fought desperately to stay alive in the battles of Gallipoli and the Somme. Years later, when my uncle asked Granddad how he had made sergeant at 20, my granddad said, I was one of the only ones in my unit who was still alive and sober. But back in Greenwich, being a war hero didn't count for much when you were looking for a job. And the jobs that were to be had there were going to the returning soldiers who were Scots and Protestant. That's when my grandparents decided to try and make a life in America. My granddad John came first and found a job in the Brooklyn shipyards. And my grandmother Mary followed with my dad Danny, a babe in arms at the time, and my uncle John, a toddler, by her side. So by now you're probably wondering how my story is similar to the stories of our border today. Well, my ancestors would never have left Ireland in the first place if it had been a safe and stable country. But years before, the English had invaded, redistributed the land, essentially making the Irish serfs and servants on the very land they used to own. So when the famine hit, the English did little to help save the starving Irish peasants. In fact, many of them in power saw the famine as an opportunity to cull the herd and rid the land of the unwanted tenants. Well, that same callous and heartless attitude is present in the military governments and the narco gangs that rule Central America, and it's forcing children and their parents to seek refuge in this country, a country that is known for giving shelter. Would they rather stay in their own country? Of course they would. But that choice was taken from them long ago when democratically controlled governments were toppled and military dictatorships were installed. So they've done what they've had to do and fled. Over the last 50 years, Central Americans have been fleeing violence, civil war, massacres, and political persecution that the United States has funded directly or indirectly through cover-ups or denials. Through the Immigrant Stories Project over the last 14 years, I've been honored to meet some of these Central American refugees who've made a life for themselves and their families here in the United States.
Lisbeth Jacobs was one of those. She was born Lisbeth Rivera Vasquez in Guatemala in 1976. She and her little sister grew up under the brutal dictatorship of the Guatemalan government until 1988 when her mother was able to hatch a plan and flee. And just a warning, Elizabeth's description contains some graphic images of violence that some may find disturbing. We came to the United States because my mother had an opportunity to come and study nursing. Well, what was going on in Guatemala at that time when your mother was deciding to change? At the time, well, there was a period of great unrest. Um, I think it had been going on since the 70s, since maybe the late 60s. And Rios Montt had taken power. And Rios Montt turned out to be basically a military dictator. He was not seen as a dictator by other countries, but a military leader. And he basically installed a military dictatorship in the country. Also, when mom was going to the university, I think that you can see it a lot like the 1960s here. There was a lot of activism. Uh, there were uh, marches and protests against the government, the, op the oppression that was going on. But at the same time, Mom saw that a lot of these students started disappearing, and they were murderers, women, students, uh, young college uh, students ended up being chopped up into little pieces, or basically they were never found, and they disappeared. So my mom saw this very early, and she didn't see that there was, going to, there was no change happening as a result of all these uh, protests and and everything. I mean, it was a military dictatorship. They didn't have to respond to to any pressure right. from the public. And uh, she was pregnant with me. And she was asked to go tag or, you know, do signs for, you know, to post. And so, you mean like tag, like, uh, like si protest signs on the sides of buildings and mm -hmm. such? Oh. And she saw that she saw the tear gas. She saw classmates being beat up. Um, but then, more importantly, they started disappearing. And one of her friends asked her to go, but for whatever reason, Mom said, no, I'm just, she was pregnant, and she just decided not to go. And then her friend disappeared. She was murdered. So, I mean, to be so close to that and to see your classmates just, disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, that was, um, mom decided that there was no way that she was going to raise her children in that kind of environment, even in, in a place where you couldn't do anything about it. That was Lizbeth Jacobs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. And today we're exploring some of the reasons for the present surge of Central American refugees at our border. By listening to the stories of Central Americans like Lizbeth, who fled Guatemala in 1988. Like Lizbeth, Ishmael Argueta also fled Central America. But he was fleeing from El Salvador. He came in 1984 at the age of 19. Here he explains why. It was a civil war when, in the time when I grew up, just hard to, for teenager. After school, there was only two choices, join the army or join the guerrillas. In my point of view, they both were wrong. 
I think uh, the gorilla, you know, they can get killed with his brother and the other side, and they not even know why. Just only because uh, one was took it for one side, and the other was took it by the other side. And a lot of people didn't know what they were fighting for. And I learned to live in, in the war, not to speak and be neutral. Tell me how one stays neutral in a war. If an army came to my house and asked me for food or money, we just give it. Then one hour later, the guerrillas come to the house and they ask for anything, we just give it. And you don't see, you don't know nothing, you just serve. How old were you when the war came? I was in the middle school, probably 12 years, 13, all over to high school. A lot of stories about friends who Sometimes they didn't get the papers, they lost it or anything, and they got stopped by the army or police. They can be killed. They just disappeared. At the beginning, we were a young kid at the school, and everything was happening in the big cities, and we never thought it was going to come to our small town. You know, we seen in TVs that there were groups that were fighting against the government, but at that time, we never thought that we were coming to our town, so the small town. Do you remember when you realized that they were now in your town? Yes, I remember when they took it over. I was uh, early in the morning, four o'clock. We started hearing a lot of shots, and everybody, we got into the floor. We knew that they were took in the place. They were fighting in the downtown, and didn't took really long. I think by the middle of the day, that was already over. They, they got control from the town, and we didn't know what was next. After the guerrillas took over the small town, we have to pay money to them. If the army find out that we are supporting them, we're in danger too. We, I was within two walls. I remember, I always think about, when I think about war, there is two wars. One in the mind and one the people who are fighting. And I think I live both. Tell me about the, the war of the mind. It's that war that the people come all the time telling, Oh, I think they're looking for you. I think this is going to happen. I think that in some place they got killed, you know, so many people. It's a lot of bad things that was happening. You don't live uh, a good life. That was Ishmael Argueta describing life in El Salvador during the Civil War of the 1980s. The war started in 1980 and ended in 1992. 75,000 people were killed, most of them victims of the military government that the United States supported. Thousands of victims fled north to the United States, seeking asylum. Ana Ariza was one of them. When the war started in 1980, Ana was five, and it didn't end until she was 17. When I met her in 2007, she was one of my first interviews, and I had no idea of what she had been through until I asked her a naive question about her favorite traditions, traditions she remembered as a child. And she said this. You know, growing up, we didn't celebrate much because we were so poor. And because of the war, it was nothing to celebrate. <laughs> nothing to celebrate, just to hide in the woods, you know, from the, from the bad people. You used to have to hide in the woods? Yeah. We had to hide in the wood, live in the dark. We didn't not even allow to turn the lights on because if we do, they throw bombs to our house. Yeah, so, you know, I don't have much holidays to remember in my country. You know, I never got a birthday 
party. I never had a... I never went able to go to other people's house. It always has to be in your place or do your errands and come back home. And there was certain time that you can do that. It was sad. So there was danger throughout your childhood. Yeah. It was very dangerous, yeah. And uh, it was at one time, you know, when the war was going on, I didn't understand much. It was still little. But I remember my parents building a big box of wood and that's where we went, you know, every time that they start firing at arms and all that. And the airplanes, you know, came over and bombed the village and all that. So we used to go in that box and be there for a whole day. Yeah, I was just... How old were you? I was five, and that went on until I was like 15 years old. So I can't remember much, you know, about celebrating. Everything it was about praying and hiding. And I, I think that's all I can remember, you know. That must have been awful to be in a child in the midst of war. Yeah. Now, you know, that I see wars in other country, kind of remind me. But I guess you get used to it, you know, because I know we were afraid. My grandparent was always trying to protect us, you know. But um, in the meantime, it's kind of like a, it's a daily thing that happened. What would the village do when they were under attack? You had a box. Did other people have boxes? Yeah. Time? Some people left our village, but it didn't matter because they got killed, you know, while they were leaving to somewhere else. So... Our village um, got destroyed. Most of the people got killed. And we were lucky we didn't get killed. Most of the people in your village were killed. killed. Yeah. So as a child, did you see that? Yeah. We had to go to the river and carry water because we didn't have water at our home. And then you're going to those um, trails. You see bodies all over the place. Yeah. And that was... It was sad, but like I say, in the meantime, you get a strain and, and you just think that it's part of the, the life. That was Anna Ariza. Anna fled to the United States when she was 17. Like Anna, Mercedes Garcia was a young girl when El Salvador's Civil War came to claim her childhood. Here she remembers her teenage years. We suffer a lot then because uh, we have soldiers and the guerrilla they were coming passing by and they got in a war you know we can hear the bombs their shooting and all of that now I think about it and I feel we were so blessed to survive the war the ho- houses were not even concrete by then. And we didn't have like uh, those nice big mattress that we can go underneath. We didn't have those type of things. But we would go under the bed. And now I think about it, how we decide to go under the bed. The bed was not a safe place. But it's still, you know, at least we are on the ground. So did that happen a lot? Were you? Were it happened a lot when I was there. Yes, yeah, 
on my teenager oh, years, it was really hard because um, we always live scared. If we see the soldiers, we were afraid that the guerrilla gonna come and we will be stuck in the middle. And every time we will travel, we didn't have a car by then, so we traveled on the bus. And it was hard because uh, soldiers will stop the bus and unload the bus, so put everybody outside, and they will ask for identifications, and they look at you and said, um, are you part of the guerrilla? So it is. Uh, it was so scary every time. I remember when uh, my brother, I remember when he was uh, 14, 15, he will be um, taken, the soldiers will take him to put him in a, to fight, but my mom was always going after him, so he never got to go. How did how was your mother able to get your brother back out of the army? I mean, they took him away to be in the army, right? Yes. So she was there at their office where they have all the kids, and she was there and cry and you know uh, begging for. Uh, because uh, she was um, afraid that he would be gone. And then after that, when is when he going to get out, that place where they have the recruit all the boys, if they get out from there, it's not easy for them to go back with their families. Yeah, right, once so, they're in the Army. So she was trying to... She was trying to... Keep get, that from keep happening. That, yes. So did she have... Did she have to bribe anyone, or did they just finally say, "Okay, please leave"? Uh, take uh, no, the kid. she had to bribe somebody, you know, and it's uh, it was hard for her. So the end is scary, and she have other friends helping her. That was Mercedes Garcia. Mercedes fled El Salvador in 1995 when she was 25. By the early 90s. The violence of war that Mercedes had grown up in was being replaced by another enemy. Drug cartels and street gangs stepped into the void that war and instability had created. And together these cartels and gangs built an artery of cocaine that ran from Colombia through Central America to the United States, the world's largest consumer of cocaine. Jose Mendoza Torbin grew up in this new and deadly environment of drug violence and intimidation. He just wanted to go to school and realize his dream of becoming a nurse. But the gangs and the cartels had a different idea. And the reason I came, uh, there were uh, gangs that, that made me um, uh, difficult to study, to live, because I couldn't even um, go out with, with my friend or, or have fun. So the gang members, other gangs in town, they, they were, were after you. Yeah, they they were um, two kinds of gangs, two different kinds of gangs. So they were um, MS thirteen, and MN eighteen. So there are three. You know, they fighting for that. Who had that more territory to to the other? What made you decide to come? Was there an incident? Yeah, there were uh, incident where um, some of them, my friend died and. 
So I decided to, to come to the United States. Do you remember the day that you left El Salvador? Oh, yes. was um, so horrible, you know. I knew it. I was leaving my, my parents, all my friends, and my house, you know. I remember I, I was crying this day, the day I, I left my parents. So you were afraid and depressed and... Yeah, I was afraid, and I was when I was in Guatemala, I was uh, was thinking to go back because my heart was breaking, you know, and to to live in them. But I had to do it, so I had to be uh, so strong to to come here and and study, you know. How was it you stayed out of gangs? I concentrate to study, but I couldn't because of these gangs, you know. I moved uh, because I was studying in one school. Just I studied until uh, sixth grade, and then I moved to uh, another school because of the game. They they always are find, uh, finding the way to to you know to bother me and take my money or you know hit me with any reason. In both uh, schools, you know, and that's why I I I decide to come here. Why do you want to study nursing? Uh, because, you know, I like to, um, I want to find the way to, to help people. And I think to uh, getting my nursing degree is is the better way to help uh, this community that have been helping me a lot. That was Jose Mendoza Turbin. Jose came to the United States and realized his dream. He graduated from Glenwood Springs High School and Colorado Mountain College's nursing program. Today, he is actively helping give back to the community that was there when he needed them. Like Jose, Tony Mendez's parents fled El Salvador to escape the civil war and the violence of the drunk gangs and cartels. Tony grew up listening to their stories of the country they loved, ravaged by war and instability. He watched them as they struggled to adapt to their new country while mourning the death and destruction of their beloved one. Here Tony describes the toll that has been taken on the country his parents once called home. In 2015, El Salvador was the most dangerous non-wartime country in the world. They had, I believe it was 25 killings a day, so more than one killing an hour. What are the stories? I mean, your parents must be fearful. You, you still have relatives there. They... Right. We, we hear stories about gang warfare happening all of the time, um, most, in most every part of the country. What's really funny is um, even just talking about some of the stories that I've told you, I, I can feel the fear of, uh, of some of the stories. You know, even talking about stories from El Salvador, I think about all the stories I've been told on how we're not supposed to talk about um, what happens in El Salvador or what's going on with the gang members. It's, it's always been something that I get, that I'm told not to do <laughs> just because it, it, it can not only affect my life, but it can affect the life of others. Um, family, for example, you know, you have family who's on the line. Um, you have family down there. And, and if any sort of gang member catches that word, it can be very scary for them. They, they live in a, a, a state of constant fear. Um, I was actually in El Salvador last summer, and we got to visit one of my uncles who was living close to the capital. 
And uh, my mom was just telling me how surprised she was that we had the guts to go to the area where my uncle lives because there's a, a detention center, you could say, or a penitentiary right. uh, where there are a lot of gang members who are being held up. And, and jails in El Salvador are completely different than they are here in the United States. So these are sort of like sieves that the information comes and goes and so does a lot of other things, right? Right. So what kind of precautions did you have to take to to move around when you went back? Was there the sense of fear? Or? I think we always have fear while we go down there. Um, the reason we go down there is to visit family. My grandparents are getting older and they're starting to ail. Um, so we try and go and visit them as much as possible. But we, we are cautious and we only spend time with family. Um, it's the only thing that makes sense for us. That was Tony Mendez. These days, Tony is an attorney with Alpine Legal Services in Glenwood Springs. Elizabeth Jacobs has her master's in social work. Ana Ariza is a technician at the Pitkin County Airport. Mercedes Garcia is a social worker for Garfield County Public Health. Ishmael Argueta and his wife Alida have owned and operated Taqueria El Nopal in Basalt in Glenwood for 27 years. And Jose Mendoza Turbin is a nurse. When I listen to their stories, I am reminded of my Irish ancestors, who also fled a country ravaged by foreign government intervention, corporate plundering, and violence. It was President Theodore Roosevelt who, in 1904, declared our right to exercise what he called international police power in Central and South America. So for nearly 120 years, we've been sowing the seeds of today's crisis at our border. There are thousands of stories like those you've heard today waiting at our borders. Many of those people are not unlike Mercedes, Jose, Ishmael, and Judith, who came to the United States fleeing for their lives in hopes of finding a safe place they could call home. They found that place and made a better life and in the process made life better for all of us. You've been listening to the Immigrant Stories program. To hear more Immigrant Stories, go to our website, immigrantstories.net. There you'll find 250 interviews with people from all over the world. You can also subscribe to Immigrant Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 